You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. This message is from our series called Jesus and Women, presented by Julie Coleman, author, teacher, and member of New Hope Chapel's teaching team. This month, four years ago, we added to our family and took in Sasha the dog. Now, Sasha the dog came from a rescue, and uh, she had been found as a stray, and she apparently had been abused because if we lifted our hands anywhere in her vicinity, she would flinch. She didn't wag her tail for a full year that we had her, um, and she was a sad little puppy when she first came to us. So she had her issues. Um, most dogs really love affection and to be petted. Sasha does not. We we kind of think of her more as a cat than a dog in many ways. Um, if if you if she comes into a room and say, "Oh, Sasha, come here, come here," because you just want to give her a little love, she'll kind of give you a dirty look and walk away. Or, I mean, that's just not normal for a dog, right? Dogs like to be petted. What's up with that? Um, she's nice to visitors when they come in the door after she finishes barking at them. Um, but uh, but after she greets them and all, that's it. She's done. She doesn't want any more attention from them and walks away. Um, if she's on the bed and I sit down next to her on the bed and go to pet her, she'll put up with it for a minute or two, and then she'll get up and go to the other side of the bed and lay down <laughs> because she's tired of the whole thing. Uh, now, she does get affectionate once in a while, and that is when it's time for her walk. She's got a great internal clock, and she knows exactly when it's supposed to be time for her walk. And so when it's time for a walk, she's very affectionate. She's honest, like white on rice and, you know, just, oh, loving and affectionate because she wants her walk. We're not stupid. We see through her, her motivation, <laughs> her ulterior motives. Well, today we're going to look at someone else who had some ulterior motives and maybe didn't even realize it herself. We're going to look at the story of Martha. This is a great story, and, and I've discovered some wonderful things as I studied this. So let's take a look at the uh, scripture. If you have your Bibles with you, it would be a great idea to open to Luke chapter 10. I'm going to be doing some referring to things before um, the story of Martha and Jesus, and it might be very helpful for you to have that open. And there's also an outline on your bulletin the back of your bulletin to follow along with to um, see where I'm headed with the message. So, first question we have to ask is, where did Martha go wrong? Now, i got to tell you, this story has always irked me as a woman. How about women out there? Do you agree with me? It's a little irritating. And the reason it's irritating is, was Jesus actually criticizing Martha for working in the kitchen? Really? Because where was dinner going to come from if she didn't get it together and get it prepared. That's number one. If everybody's sitting at Jesus' feet, was he really commending Mary for abandoning her sister and leaving her to do all the work by herself? Wasn't that kind of a selfish motive? The traditional interpretation for the account goes something like this. Martha was wrong in allowing her meal preparations to keep her from worshiping at Jesus' feet. Right? Haven't you heard that before? Mary had the right idea. It's so much better to rest at Jesus' feet than to be busy serving. In other words, Martha, bad. Mary, good. That's the traditional interpretation. In other words, we all need to be like Mary and not let our doing get in the way of our worship. Have you heard that before? I have, and I believed it for many a year, but I don't think that this is where the story is going. And I'll show you why. First of all, other scripture has something to say about hospitality. Because hospitality is a God-given mandate. 
So it's something that's a good thing. In the Old Testament, it's included in the Mosaic Law. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. It was actually part of Mosaic Law to provide hospitality for people. And we have a lot of examples of that. We have Abraham, we have Lot, just in Genesis alone, that just really um, work to provide hospitality because it's a God-given mandate. Job actually used it, his claim of hospitality as a proof of his innocence because his friends were accusing him of sin. And Job says, the alien has not lodged outside, for I have opened my door to the traveler. So he's insisting that he's been godly because he provided hospitality. Then you have Isaiah. Isaiah actually offered hospitality as a way Israel could demonstrate their repentance. He says this, divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house then you will call and the Lord will answer. So providing hospitality was actually something <clears throat> that would prove repentance. And even God is pictured as the ultimate host in Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. So in light of all of these Old Testament mandates about hospitality, I'll bet Martha viewed her service as an obedience to scriptural directive. She was doing what the Bible said she was supposed to be doing, providing hospitality. So it probably came as a real shock when Jesus chose Mary's actions over hers as the better part. As a matter of fact, the original Greek actually shows that she expected an affirmation in the way that she asked the question. It's the way the grammar shows us. But Jesus didn't back her up like she expected. We continue on to the New Testament. Jesus said this. Um, he talked to his disciples that were vying for the most influential spots in his kingdom. He said, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last and servant of all. In fact, the very nature of Christ's coming was all about selfless service. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So if we're living life in an imitation of a servant king, that necessitates our willingness to serve as well, because we're following in his footsteps. Jesus defined the members of his family as those who hear the word of God and do it. <clears throat> There's also some practical implications of this traditional interpretation. Because if Martha dropped everything then and there and joined Mary at Jesus' feet, how was dinner going to get on the table? You have to think about these things. <laughs> and as one who's always serving dinner to people, it, it worries me. I mean, Jesus and his disciples relied on the hospitality of others as they went from town to town to town. So how could Jesus be criticizing Martha for her efforts at hospitality? And what would this world look like if all of us became Mary, sitting around being spiritual and not getting anything done? So there's practical implications. This traditional interpretation suggests a God that assigns responsibility to serve and then disapproves of us as we do it. It just doesn't ring true to me. Both from a scriptural viewpoint and light of common sense. So, let's put that traditional interpretation, erase it out of our minds, and let's take a look at scripture and see what it has to say. And we're going to look especially at the story itself. What issue was Jesus really addressing? He said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many 
things. Well, I took a look at those two words because Jesus was not commenting on Martha's service. He was commenting on her mindset, how she was thinking. Rather than comparing listening and serving, <clears throat> he was comparing anxiety and anger with figuratively sitting at Jesus' feet in peace, a mindset. That first word, worry, merimao, um, is anxious, apprehensive, or unduly concerned. Jesus used the same word, merimao, later on in, in Luke. He says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or about your body as to what you will put on. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. Jesus knew that anxiety would be detrimental to their service, and so he wanted his disciples free from that distraction. That's worry. Second thing she was, was bothered. Well, that word comes from thorobadzo. It's troubled, disturbed, or disquieted. And it's most often used to describe an unruly or um, rioting mob. So you get this, a lot of emotion and almost uncontrolled anger. Martha had gotten herself all worked up, and she was up to her ears in anxiety-induced anger. You know, it hadn't started that way. Luke tells us that Mar Martha welcomed Jesus into her home. That word welcomed is used one other time, and it's in the story of Zacchaeus. And if you remember, Zacchaeus was a tax collector, hated by everybody, and he was small. And Jesus was coming, and he wanted to see Jesus, because he heard the tax collector had been taken on as one of the disciples. Well, that was unusual. So Zacchaeus wanted to see him, anxious to see him. Who would love a tax collector? And so he climbed a tree in order to be able to see above the crowds, and Jesus looked up when he passed him and said, Zacchaeus, come down, because I'm going to your house today. And it says Zacchaeus joyfully welcomed Jesus to his home, you know, being accepted by the master as a tax collector was an amazing thing. Well, that joyful reception, that's the same word that, we, that Luke used to talk about Martha accepting Jesus into her home. So when he first walked in the door, she was thrilled he was there. She was anxious to give him the very best she could. She wanted to serve him a meal at her table. So when did things go sour? How did Martha morph from a gracious hostess to an indignant victim? Well, Martha lost her perspective. She started to focus on the service rather than the one she served, and everything fell apart. It's what happens when we get off center. We start with altruistic motives. We see something that needs to be done, and we go ahead and do it. But if our service does not come out of our love for God, it's doomed to become all about us. Because we start to slip into this, this idea of seeking self-satisfaction from the very service that we do. We're looking for a sense of significance rather than finding it in our relationship with him. And then we start to crave more satisfaction because it's not really making it for us. And so we start comparing ourselves to everybody else. What are they doing? Oh, I'm so much better than that. They, they should do it my way. And then and pretty soon, that idea of finding self-satisfaction turns into judging others. And now we've got this judgment platform. Why don't they do it my way? Our service becomes our baby. <laughs> Something that defines us and our meaning and not about God at all. Now we can imagine Martha having that happen to her. 
doing a slow burn as she's in the kitchen. She'd slaved away all day getting this meal ready. There were no microwaves back then. Everything was fresh, and she had to do it all by hand. And so she had worked and worked in getting this meal ready. And no one seemed to be appreciating how hard she was working. And then Mary, her sister, who was supposed to be helping her, had abandoned her and gone off and was sitting out with the men, which, by the way, was socially very, very inappropriate. So, you know, she, you can imagine her thinking, she's ruining everything. Not only is she not helping me, but she's out there with the men like she's some man deserving to be part of the conversation because women were not included. By the time she surfaced in that dining room, Martha's slow burn had developed into a raging fire. How do I know? Because of that condemning outburst that said it all. She's not helping me. Martha needed a new perspective. So what exactly was Jesus commending Mary for choosing? We know he was telling Martha she was worried and bothered. Then he went to Mary and said, Mary has chosen the good part, which will not be taken away from her. So what does that mean? Well, I struggled with that phone for a while. What's the good part? What's the good part? And if you look in your Bibles, I'm going to show you from the context in which Luke places this story how we can figure out what the good part is. First of all, uh, near the, uh, I don't know how the exact verse, but that you'll see it in your sections in your Bible, but there's one um, story of Jesus. He had sent 70 disciples out into towns to prepare them, uh, to prepare the towns for his coming in there and giving them the message of the kingdom. And while they were there, they were healing the sick and, and doing all kinds of miracles, and they came back totally, totally excited. And they came and they said, Jesus, even the demons are, are, had to submit to us in the power, and they were just so thrilled at what they did. Um, and it was, it was so exciting. Jesus rejoiced with them, but he also cautioned them, because power tends to corrupt, and they had been given great power. But if what they were doing became their focus and their reason for being, rather than about bringing glory to God, then it was going to become all about them, their works, their success, their fame. So this is how Jesus responds to them. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. In other words, don't lose sight of why you're in ministry to begin with. So in response to those words, this teacher of the law stands up and he says, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Looking at the disciples, that their names were already recorded in heaven. Well, Jesus asked him, well, what's written in the law? He always starts with where people are. And this was a teacher of the law. Well, this was a no-brainer. Every scribe knew the most important law. It was the Shema. It was a familiar creed to any Jew. And he also joined it with a verse in Leviticus. And this is what he says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and this is the part from Leviticus, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. He was basically reiterating the same thing he had just said to the 70 disciples who had come back all excited. The relationship with God is the main thing. It all boiled down to faith, to loving God, to trusting him. And service was a secondary, natural outflow of that relationship, of that wholehearted love and devotion for him. Well, the lawyer wanted specifics. He said, well, who is my neighbor? 
And in response, Jesus tells a parable, the story of the Good Samaritan. And he talks about two religious leaders that saw this wounded man on the side of the road, passed him by. But then the third man, a Samaritan, whom the Jews hated, and there was a well-known uh, racial tension there, he stopped and he administered first aid. He left him to the innkeeper's care to doubly reimburse any expenses the man incurred until he was able to travel again. That's how you love your neighbor as yourself. The Good Samaritan service was performed with no thought to personal benefit or reward. It wasn't about him. <laughs> Loving your neighbor as yourself has its roots in, a, in that very first command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. The next story, Martha is steaming in the kitchen. So let's take a look at those two. He gives the Good Samaritan... Then he gives Martha. The Good Samaritan shows the second part of that command, how to love your neighbor as yourself. And Martha tells us how to love the Lord your God with all your heart. It's that command in reverse with those next two stories. Jesus told Martha, only one thing is necessary. What's the one thing? It all goes back to that command. Service, when done to an end to itself, can quickly become burdensome. A lasting sense of satisfaction in service can only come from our relationship with God. And way too often, we skip over that first component. And we're all about doing things for God. But far more than our accomplishments, he wants us to invest in our relationship with him. Mary had chosen the good part. Her being was centered on the Lord and zeroed in on him, so much that she abandoned her responsibilities and she sat at his feet because nothing aced the presence of the Lord sitting in her living room. So what was Jesus offering to Martha? He was giving her a very gentle invitation to embrace him with all her heart, just as her sister had. And that ensuing relationship was going to change everything for Martha. It's going to furnish the perspective which would make Martha's service a joy rather than a burden. Knowing Christ intimately would free her from that anxiety and that trouble and it would give her peace. So what does this story mean for us today? You, Martha, have you ever had your attitude suffer while you were serving? I can definitely plead guilty to that one. You know, service in itself, like we showed before, it's not bad. Service is not the bad thing. It's a God-given mandate. It's an essential for us to be living our lives for Christ. But if we neglect the good part, the first thing, loving him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, our service is not going to be joyful or fulfilling. It's eventually going to become a burden and rather filling us with contentment and satisfaction, it's going to suck the life out of us if it's not grounded in our relationship with God. Now, if we look at the story, we can see some indications some red flags as to what happens if we are neglecting the good part. First we see in Martha a critical spirit. She has a harsh judgment of her sister's actions, um, and she starts to find, you know, that's what happens. We start to find satisfaction in the fault of others as we, if we have a critical spirit. And we lose sight that we're all supposed to be on the same team, <laughs> serving the same Lord. If we start thinking it's us against them, Something's very wrong. That's one red flag. A second red flag is when the word me starts to take center stage. 
It did for Martha. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving by myself? Then tell her to help me, she commanded. You hear me, me, me all over it. When we start to see that our agenda has become self-focused, warning bells should start to ring. shouldn't be about us at all. Here's a third red flag, a need to control things. Martha felt very justified in ordering people around to accomplish her agenda. She told Mary, get back in the kitchen, and she told Jesus, tell her to get back in the kitchen. So she was telling everybody what to do. Now, I can relate with that. My father used to tell me I was very bossy. You're so bossy. My teachers used to call it leadership potential. <laughs> but however you want to word it, <laughs> leadership is a good thing. But I do tend to jump in and start telling everybody what to do the minute I, the, as soon as I enter some kind of a ministry. It's a good thing if you're under the control of the Holy Spirit. But wanting to control everything all the time, that can be a real red flag. And um, I speak from experience on that. Um, years ago, we were in another church. Not about Justin. <laughs> we were in another church, and I was on another worship team, and singing, um, and, and we would we had a wonderful time. The, the, it, was, it was just when praise teams were starting to really come into their own, and we were having a lot of fun doing all this worship music and putting all these instruments together. It was a blast. And the girl that was leading us was terrific. Well, anyway, she had to leave. She was military, and they moved on to their next place. And um, the guy who took over was very, very different from her, very, very difficult to work with. He came in with a lot of ideas. He wanted everything changed right away, and it was going to be his way or the highway. And for me, I immediately perceived him as a threat to the team's ministry, and I felt personally responsible to keep him in line. So every new change that he tried to do, I resisted. I didn't like the new music he introduced. I didn't like the way he ran rehearsals. I didn't like his stupid rules and regulations, which he only half-heartedly um, tried to enforce. No one likes change, but I had spiritual reasons to be in control. <clears throat> I was working to keep the spiritual integrity of the team intact. And so for two years, I resisted everything he tried to do, sometimes more loudly than others. But after a couple of years of that self-righteous behavior that I had, and I'm ashamed to tell you that I did, we had a worship team meeting, and we were discussing whether or not we should be taking using music stands. And he always, it just really irritated me, he used to call the people who played instruments musicians, but not the vocalists. It was a little irritating, because, you know, we're musicians too. But anyway, he decided that the vocalists should not have music stands. And I said, okay, well, then the musicians shouldn't have music stands either. Oh, no, no, they need them. I said... So do we. Well, anyway, we end up in this big back and forth. And it got more and more heated. And then finally I said this. Well, when Kim was here, who, by the way, was a real musician, and the pastor said, Julie, stop right there. And I was sick. Because in that moment, all of a sudden it became very clear to me just exactly what my motivations were. And they were not about bringing glory to God. They're about me controlling. And what showed that up? The absence of love in how I was handling it. Paul tells us this. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Exercising our spiritual gifts, serving, has to come from our love for God. Otherwise, 
other, other than working as an orchestra to be, produce a beautiful harmony of sound instead or uh, dissonant noise. Love for God is the key to making our efforts at service meaningful. You can't have that kind of foundational love for God without investing in your relationship with him. He's revealed everything he wants us to know about him in his word. We need to dig deep and see those things. He communicates with us in prayer, if we could actually take time to listen to him. He teaches us about his himself through godly people, other godly people in our lives. Because for God, it's all about the relationship. And it should be for us too. Because neglecting the good part is going to spell disaster for service. And when we fall in love with God, our cup overflows. He fills us with his love in abundance so great it spills out onto the lives of the others, others that are in our sphere of influence. We start to look at people differently. We start to see them through his eyes and realize just how much he loves them. And he wants us to love them too. No longer our work can be about us. It's got to be benefit of the others that he loves. So our need for control vanishes. Change doesn't threaten us. Instead, we can look back, peacefully sit back and wait and see how God is going to use this change for his glory. Rather than reacting in anger, we start responding in love. And we save ourselves a boatload of misery in the end. Because when you know and love God, you can relax in the power and goodness that is his. Now, did Martha follow through on what Jesus suggested? Well, I think he, she did, because it's not the end of her story. We see her again in the Gospel of John. And you'll remember, it was just spoken on a couple of weeks ago, Lazarus, Martha's brother, died. And Jesus comes too late, after they had already sent the message. And Martha rushes out to meet him as he comes. And this is what she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, at first glance, we think, oh boy, here goes Martha again. Lord, you're not doing what I thought you should do. But is she really saying that? Because her next statement says this. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Martha wasn't casting aspersions on Jesus at all. She was expressing her firm belief in his power and wisdom, trusting in his complete obedience to the Father. And then, a few sentences later, Martha demonstrates the depth of her understanding with a very stunning statement. What she reveals fully encompasses the very nature of Jesus and it was not uttered by any other person in the Gospels except for Peter. She says, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes out, it comes into the world. She understood what most of his disciples did not until after his resurrection. Well, where did all this brilliant insight come from? Well, I think... Um, it, it happened because of what she had found out about him. In the conversation, Jesus tells Martha he's the resurrection and the life. Does she believe this, he asks her. And Martha says this, Yes, Lord, I have believed. The verb tense there in the Greek is perfect indicative, and it indicates a completed action which has previously taken place that affects the speaker's present. In other words, she believed a while ago, and that now is dictating what her response is now. I think we can assume that Martha did exactly what Jesus suggested back at that first dinner. 
She made it her business to get to know him, and what she learned enabled her to trust him, even when his chosen absence caused her brother's demise. She knew his character. She knew who he was. So in spite of her devastating circumstances, she could trust him. And I got one more piece of evidence. If you look to the next chapter, you'll see that Martha is once again serving dinner for Jesus at her home. And once again, Mary goes AWOL. <laughs> this time she's anointing Jesus with her tears and wiping her, his feet with her hair. But we don't see Martha express any unhappiness at all. She's serving her Lord quietly, going about her responsibility without comment on her sister's repeat desertion. Why? I believe it's because Martha found her focus, her center, her reason for being. She knew him now. She loved him. And she trusted in that wisdom and character. No longer was she driven to control anything. Or she didn't compare herself with her sister or others. It wasn't about her at all anymore. It was about serving him about the one she was serving. The anxiety, the trouble, gone. Off the radar screen. Martha could serve in peace, even when serving in the sweat, sweaty heat of the kitchen, because her service was a natural outcome from her love for Jesus alone. Well, like Martha, our anxiety, our uh, antidote for anxiety and trouble, lies in drawing close to the Savior. Don't concentrate on the anxiety. Don't concentrate on the, tr the, the uh, trouble. Instead, concentrate on him. As we learn to him, from him and learn to trust in who he is, our love for him is going to grow. And our service is merely going to be an outflow from that relationship. We'll be free to work without anger because we are not doing it for recognition or any other self-serving motive. We serve freely because we now understand how freely we are loved. And we're in our focus is where it should be. There will only be joy in our service. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's New Hope podcast. Chapel's Located podcast. in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body larger of Christ body that spans that across spans the world. Across We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.